Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to continue our sermon series looking at the cross-shaped life in the gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. It's on page 1079, if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we have underneath the chair in front of you, 1079. Hear now God's holy and true word. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know you are a true teacher. We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you would gather us here this morning, that we could sing your praises, confess our desperate need for Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, what he is doing in us through the Holy Spirit, what he has promised us in the future. Father, we pray that you would be with us now that you would use this time to make us new. If there are among people among us who uh, do not know you, I pray that this would be their introduction, that they would know this God who loves us and pursues us and sends his one and only son to die in our place. Father, as we, uh, as a church and part of the church in the world, face um, challenges, particularly in our country, we we ask for your grace and your 
guidance. And so we thank you for the way that your word shapes us and teaches us. Pray that you would give us strength this morning and equip us to run with the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, so I, a lot of you know that I went to a conference up in Nashville, not this past week, but the week before, and I spoke a little bit about it in an email recently to you. If you're, if you're not getting the weekly email, um, uh, I would ask that you go to our website and get signed up for that. Uh, we communicate a lot of important information through the email. One of the things that I said in the email uh, a couple weeks ago is that the, the, the conference was very enlightening. Uh, to what we are facing as a church and as a, one of many local churches that teaches uh, what the Bible says and believes what the Bible says. Um, and it, really, we, you know, we have a challenge ahead of us because the culture uh, is continuing to diverge from uh, what the truth of the scriptures is. And so that puts us in an uh, increasingly difficult situation. And uh, one of the things that I learned at the conference is there are actually dozens of cases, legal cases being litigated right now, having to do with Christians who are being sued because they didn't want to participate in something that went against their beliefs, uh, most commonly unbiblical marriages. And so um, I, I thought there was a few cases. I found out there are lots of cases. Um, in fact, there's one case which is very interesting. In the majority of these cases, people are suing other people. But in, in one case, there's a woman named Baronel. Uh, she lives in the state of Washington. And Baronel has been a florist for uh, uh, several decades, I believe. And um, one of her employees that she had worked with for several years and had developed a really good friendship with, uh, uh, he... Uh, told her that he was wanting to get married and that, um, that he wanted her to do the flowers for the wedding. And this would have been a same-sex wedding. And as a Christian, Baronel felt like although she loves him and uh, wants what's best for him, she cannot participate in, in what this man was going to do. So interestingly enough, he sued her, is suing her. But the state of Washington is also suing her. So it's not just this person suing Baronel. It is the state of Washington has filed suit against Baronel Stutzman. What should she do? So I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but you need to, we need to understand that we are moving into a phase in the history of our country where we are, uh, as followers of Christ, as people who want to stand on the truth because we believe the truth sets people free, we are going to experience things that we, as Christians, haven't really experienced here in this country. And we need to be ready for that. And we need to know how we go about uh, dealing with a government that very likely will begin to try to force things upon us um, that we are not uh, able to do because of our faith in the true king. And so that's one of the things that is in this passage this morning. And so uh, I just think it is uh, God's providence in, uh, in, in, our, uh, tra- in our journey through this uh, gospel. And now we, we see Jesus and we see this interesting scenario with something to do with the government. So that's what we're going to look at today. 
And, and the, the thing that we would need to uh, remember and focus on is that as followers of Christ, we are called and equipped to submit to governing authorities for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Okay, so even if things do get ugly, we are called to and equipped to submit to the governing authorities. Now, we'll explain what that means. Uh, Let's take a look at this passage, looking two things I want to talk about this morning. First, we'll talk about the call to render, the call to render, and then we'll talk about the promise of resurrection. Let's talk about the call to render. Look at verse 13 through 17. If you close your Bible, please open it back up. I want you to see these things and we're going to walk a little bit we're going to look at some other passages um the call to render uh, submitting to governing authorities is actually part of how we submit to god okay uh, our submission to our governing authorities is part of how we submit to god take a look uh, 13 and they sent to him pharisees and herodians to trap him in his talk so right out of the gate we know that this is not a legitimate conversation where they're actually wanting to learn from him they want to get him in trouble Uh, And they came, 14, uh, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. This is what we would call flattery, just buttering him up. They're, They're trying to set the trap. Here's the trap. 14, uh, second part of 14. The question they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, here's the trap. If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then he quite possibly loses credibility with Jews. The Jews did not like the fact that they were under Roman governance, under the authority of the Roman government. And so they did not like paying this tax. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay that tax, then they're hoping he'll lose credibility with the Jews. If he says, no, Don't pay your tax. Well, then he's in big trouble with the governing authorities. He's in trouble with the Romans. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is a very awkward and unlikely partnership, by the way, they did not like each other. The only thing they liked worse than each other was Jesus. And they think they've got him. Right? They're thinking, if he says, obey God and don't pay your tax, then the government's going to get him. And if he says, pay the tax, then the Jews aren't going to follow him anymore. We've got him. They did not have him. Uh, Look at 15. So knowing their hypocrisy, so Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so uh, he doesn't have one on him, uh, but they do. So they produce this denarius and um, this is uh, something a couple things to know about this this would be a small coin a roman coin uh, probably the size and weight of a dime it had uh, an image on it of caesar and the, the 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 jews hated to use this they not only hated to pay the tax this was a poll tax so this was a tax that once a year every person under the roman governing authority had to pay this tax and so they hated being under the authority but they also hated particularly using this coin because it had Caesar's image on it and because it said on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Okay? And they did not believe that Caesar was divine and they, that it was true. He was not. 
And the other side of that coin, it said high priest. So another reason they hated the idea of using this coin that said that the Roman government is the high priest, that the Caesar would be high priest. So they did not like this. So Jesus takes this little coin in his hand and he says, 16, they brought one to him and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus then said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are are God's. And they marveled. He blew their minds. Why? Well, because uh, if you uh, remember the the trap that they're trying to set here, they want Jesus to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Are you going to tell us to obey God or are you going to tell us to obey the government? What's it going to be, Jesus? Now, here's what happens. Look, just basically uh, glance back at 14 and see how they use the word pay. Should we pay the tax? That is a Greek word that literally means to give. Okay, didomi. It's a Greek word. It means to give as in to give something that belongs to you. So they were saying, should we give something that belongs to us to Caesar or should we not? And Jesus responds with a different word. It's the Greek word apodidomi, which doesn't mean to give. It means to give back. In other words, he's saying, give back to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. He's saying the tax is not yours to keep. It actually belongs to Caesar. In other words, if they were to keep their denarius, they're keeping something that does not belong to them. It's not about giving something that belongs to you. It's about giving back something that belongs to Caesar. They're his coins. How do you know? His face is on them. And so Jesus says this and, 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 you know, he could, he could stop there because at this point they see that if they don't pay the tax, they're actually stealing. Okay. So he's, he's, you know, he's blown their minds. But he also says, and render to God the things that are God's. So give back to God the things that are God's. Now, we know that God is the owner and creator of all things. But specifically, you and I, human beings, belong to God. How do we know? Because he put his face on us. He put his image on us. We are made in the image and likeness of God. In fact, Jesus uses the same word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used in Genesis 1:26, where it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And so one of the main truths of scripture is our lives are actually not ours to keep, right? We belong to God. And so to render to God the things that are God's is first and foremost to give everything in our lives over to him, to give back to him what belongs to him. And this is how their trap fundamentally fails because they want to pit obeying God and obeying the government against each other. And Jesus says, no, 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 you obey God by obeying the government. You submit to the governing authorities. You pay that tax. You give them what is due them as part of how you render to God the things that are God's. And so submitting to governing authorities is part of submitting to God. Let's take a walk. Romans 13, it's on page 
1206, Romans 13, flip there with me. Uh, take a look at this. Paul takes what Jesus has said here. He's, he's fleshing this out uh, a, l- a little bit more. And we need to see this. Uh, Romans 13, 1 through, we'll see. Um, okay. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And he goes on to talk about the rulers not bearing the sword in vain, to keep things in order. And then later, he even mentions taxes. Verse 7, pay uh, to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, uh, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect, honor, so on and so forth. And so there's this clear call to submit to governing authorities. Now, this does not mean that all governing authorities are godly people. But it does mean that they are God-ordained authorities. Now, we hear this and we're like, yeah, but this, you know, our, in our culture, the government's starting to do things uh, that are, are almost, you know, against us. What are we supposed to do about that? Well, don't forget that the original audience of Mark's gospel was Christians in Rome under the persecution of the Roman government. So we submit to the government, even when that brings uh, very difficult things upon us. You want to? Here's what's so amazing, and this was what I, I went to the conference with Mike Francis, uh, one of my best friends, a pastor out in Deland, um, and we had this great conversation about the reality that Jesus did not just uh, say this here to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus' entire life was rendered both to Caesar and to God. Okay, if you want, you can flip there. I want to show you this. Uh, think about Luke 2. It's on page 1090. Uh, Luke 2 is, the, it's a Christmas passage, right? We're going to talk about this a lot in the coming weeks. It's a Christmas passage because it talks about when Jesus was born. But why was he born where he was born? Well, Caesar wanted to have everybody under his rule registered. Why? Well, so he could collect a tax, of course. And so Jesus is in Bethlehem, he's born in Bethlehem because Joseph and Mary are going to render their selves to Caesar, to give him the, uh, the honor that he is due as the Caesar. And Jesus, even on his birthday, is in the town where he's registered as somebody who's under the authority of Caesar. The true divine son, the true high priest of God's people, is under the authority of Caesar. And his whole life, we never see anything in the Gospels of Jesus disobeying the law of the land. He goes against culture all the time, which is awesome. But he does not break the law, and then he dies because he's rendering himself once again to the government. Come with me to John 19. John 19 is on page uh, 1152. And, and, and here we have, look at verse 10, uh, Pilate, who is acting, uh, and he's an authority under the governance of Caesar. Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know, Jesus, that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus does not say, you don't have authority. Here's what he says. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given 
you from above. And so once again, we see the true divine son, the the true son of God, the true high priest of God's people, rendering himself to Caesar. And what's so phenomenal about that is in doing so, he ends up dying on a cross and paying for the sins of his people. So he dies at the hands of Roman government. And in the process, he saves you and me from an eternity in hell. Absolutely mind-blowing. And so his suffering at the hands of the Roman government is a massive piece of our redemption. And therefore, our suffering, if we suffer, if our children suffer, even under the government of this country, or if they go to the nations and they live in a country where they're trying to share the gospel where it's illegal, and they get arrested and persecuted, they can know that Our suffering, their suffering, plays a role in the advance of the gospel. Paul in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10 says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's this picture that we may suffer, our children, the next generation may suffer even at the hands of the government, but it's part of how the gospel advances. It's it's, It's part of how the gospel came to be, in the way that Jesus died, rendering himself to the authority of Caesar. So how do we apply this? Um, we who follow Christ, we are forgiven and declared righteous through faith. Uh, and he is making us new. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us to help us follow in the footsteps of our king who rendered himself to Caesar. And so uh, three things. One, we're called to submit to government. We talked about that. Uh, Romans 13. So uh, we'll, we'll leave that there. We all we are called to obey the law of the land to submit to the government. Now, what if the government tells us to do something that would cause us to disobey God? What do we do? We disobey them. This is something very important that we see. If the government tells us to disobey God, we disobey them. Okay, this is the place where where rebellion against the government actually is sanctioned. And we see it in the book of Acts. Okay, Uh, Peter and John had been sent by God to preach the gospel. And the government came and said, stop preaching the gospel. And they said, no. And then they were put in jail. And then the angel opened the door and, and let them out. And they went back preaching again. The government came back and said, I thought we told you not to do this. And they say, Acts uh, 529, we must obey God rather than men. And so it's very clear that uh, we do submit ourselves to the government, but when they tell us to do things, when they tell us to disobey God, we do not obey them. We obey God. Follow me? Um, and then number three, we accept the consequences of obedience, trusting that God is in control. Think about that. Jesus uh, there uh, being flogged, mocked, spit upon. Pilate says, I have the authority to crucify you. And Jesus says, I know you do. But it's from above. I know where it's from and I trust him. And so there's this strength that we need to have by the power of the Holy Spirit to face what comes as we continue to teach the truth and believe the truth and stand upon and actually stand under the truth and let it govern us instead of us trying to govern it. 
so how do we do this? How do we face that reality? Uh, how do we realize that although, although things are not terrible right now, uh, our children are going to live in a country that may be much more hostile? Uh, if not them, maybe our grandchildren, but Either way, how do we do that? Uh, And what's so powerful about the gospel is we not only have this call to render, but there's also this promise of resurrection. The promise of resurrection. Let's talk about that, uh, 18 through 27. No matter what happens in this life, no matter even if the government does begin to uh, persecute us in some way, uh, God's everlasting promises require everlasting life for fulfillment. And that's the logic that we're going to see Jesus use to prove that the resurrection is going to happen. I mean, think about this. If I promise to give you something, until I give you that thing, I haven't fulfilled that promise, right? Uh, And uh, Paul says in Romans 4 that God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. And so that means until Abraham is back in the world as an heir of the world, Like all of God's children, he has not received the fulfillment of that promise yet. So there's something yet to come. It shows you there's going to be a resurrection. Let's look at 18 through 23. I'm going to cruise past this and just explain what it's saying. See, the Sadducees, it says they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. So they were sad. You see? Wait for it. The rest to get it. Okay, we're together. Now, so there are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, They just believe that when you die, it's it. That's it. And that's why they think they can ask Jesus this question having to do with a custom that was designed to help protect the family's lineage, but would uh, it makes it a a good question of what do you do with people who have been married to uh, a number of people? And so Jesus says in 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That is a very very strong statement to the Sadducees who are supposed to be the experts, particularly of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We'll come back to that. 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Here's what he's saying, and it's just brilliant. The, when, when God was speaking to Moses at the burning bush, uh, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three people whose bodies were at least dead, long dead. And the, notice he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he mentions these people who we affiliate with God's covenant, showing that he still is their God. In other words, they still do exist. They are alive. They're in heaven, the holding tank that we call heaven, waiting the day when Christ returns and there's a resurrection. And that's why Jesus tells them, you guys are terribly mistaken you are quite wrong see the the bible from cover to cover teaches that god's promises are everlasting promises and that requires therefore that the recipients of those promises have everlasting life for the fulfillment of those promises and therefore we who will die physically will live on spiritually in heaven and then there will in fact be a resurrection at the end of the age we will all be resurrected 
those who believe to everlasting life and those who do not believe to everlasting death, which we call hell. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof of that. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment on the resurrection for you and I. So all of us who have put our faith in Christ trusted that he is the only one who can redeem us. We're guaranteed that one day we will come back to life. We will be resurrected to eternal life. He who has the Son has life. So what's it going to be like? And this is where... Uh, this other verse that we need to come back to is really important. See, see uh, what's, what's the new heavens and new earth going to be like? Uh, Paul said, it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor uh, the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 2. And there's, so there's this reality that in many ways we can't even, we can't even imagine how phenomenal and amazing uh, the new heavens and new earth are going to be. But it is what is promised to us. In fact, in Isaiah 65, uh, the new heavens and the new earth are talked about. And in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth are talked about where there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain. It's going to be beyond our wildest dreams amazing. And it's going to be so shockingly different that some of the things when uh, uh, Jesus teaches about it, it's sort of like, wait, what? What? Look at 25 again. Uh, For when they rise, he's talking about now the resurrection, right? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. Now, this is a pretty substantial difference from the way things are right now. Um, the, the, the reality is that scholars look at that and they say, well, when he's saying they're going to be like the angels, what does that mean? And most likely it's referring primarily to the fact that we won't be married. Nobody will be married. Angels aren't married to one another. And there also won't be procreation. There's no more, no, no, no kids coming in the new heavens and new earth. Um, so that's a, when, when you, if you love your spouse, that's a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes people even say, if that's true, I'm not sure I want to be in the new heavens and new earth, which is a beautiful picture of the love for your spouse, but it's a, a, uh, it's a reality of a, of a flawed view of how amazing things are going to be. It also, here's, here's one of the things that I, I think, so I'm taking a wild guess here, but I think this is, is helpful. When we say that, because I say that, I struggle with that. I, I love my wife. I love my wife more than I ever thought I could love another human being. So, so this is kind of hard sometimes. It's a hard truth for me. Um, and I, the reason that I think it's so hard is because I'm thinking, okay, my relationship status and level with all other human beings is down here. And then there's my relationship with my wife. And, and when I, in the new heavens, new earth, that has to drop down. That doesn't, that does, that doesn't sit right but maybe it's this maybe it's not that the the way we relate to our spouse drops down but rather the way we relate to everyone else is through the roof amazing and that we have the connection and the trust and the sweetness and the enjoyment and the, the the just the wonderful nature of having a really strong marriage we have that relationship with all of the redeemed i mean think about it jesus relationship to the church is Jesus, and then all of us, right? And when we are resurrected, we have brand new bodies, our old bodies made new, they work perfectly, and we're unable to sin, but we're also like Jesus, and therefore, in being like Jesus, we're able to perfectly relate to all people who are redeemed. 
And just, I mean, the, the, the enormity of, of that, the gravity of that, that we would be able to have these perfect relationships with the billions of people that God has chosen to redeem. And I'll tell you, I do. It, it's hard for me. It's a hard truth for me because I do love my wife. And I have said to God in prayer, I submit to this, but can I at least like sit by Hannah at mealtime or something? <laughs> I've, I've, to be serious, I've said, is it still cool if I hold her hand? But it just shows you that I have such a, I have such a limited understanding of how amazing the resurrection life is going to be. And the beautiful thing is that it's forever. Think about what this says to single people. What this says to single people is even if you never get married, you haven't missed the best. Because that's waiting for all of us. Amen. So this, this says to single people, hey... Even if I don't get married, I still get what everybody gets, the absolute best possible human relationship with other humans because our relationship has been made perfect with them and with God. Okay? And it's everlasting. And and Jesus' resurrection is the proof. See, the Sadducees, they didn't trust uh, Jesus. They didn't even uh, have the right interpretation of the Scriptures, but they couldn't get around the fact that Jesus, who said he was going to die and come back to life, died and came back to life. And the same Jesus says to you and I, if we believe, we will die, yet we will live. We will come back to life. And in that new life, new heavens and new earth, perfect relationship with God, with others, Mind-blowing. Can't even, we can't even touch it, how amazing it's going to be. And Jesus' resurrection to everlasting life is the picture and promise of our resurrection to everlasting life. And that is what we need to own and think about regularly. And that this life is a blink of an eye and it's temporary. And no matter what comes, even if it comes from the very government that we are supposed to be served by, even if it ends up being persecution, nothing can take away that whatever we go through we have awaiting us the resurrected life. And if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. You need to trust Christ. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins and the only one who can promise you life everlasting in perfect harmony with God and with others. You should do that today. And the rest of us get to sing and celebrate the reality that God is going to take eternity to fulfill these amazing promises to us. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's pray. Father, uh, would you permanently um, help us to regularly return to the truth of the gospel, to our forgiveness, to our righteousness that we have by faith in Christ, and to the promise that we will be resurrected And with the life to come, more and more overshadow the life we have right now. And with the cross of Christ loom larger and larger and give us more and more joy 
and more and more strength to run to our neighbors and to the nations with the greatest news possible. That our God reigns and Jesus is king. We pray in his name. Amen.